At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I talk to the talented Paul Holen, who is an aerial photographer who also specializes in all kinds of photography genres. We talk about his inspiring projects, including the Men With Heart project, the causes that he believes in, and much more. Please enjoy. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Jeez, where do you start? Uh, starting from um, starting from Go Doc or where I'm at now. I'm um, I'm sitting in my car in a rainy evening in in oh, a little wild island in Tasmania, which is where I live, which is just off the bottom of Australia. It sits on about 42 degrees, and it has a pretty wild, interesting climate with uh, the cleanest air in the world and some of the most accessible, beautiful wilderness. I um, I moved here about 24 years ago, which is probably around about the time I started getting a bit more serious about my image making. Uh, I'm born and bred in New Zealand before that to a Roman Catholic nun from Memphis, Tennessee and a Dutch sailing boat builder who met and fell in love with the Greek islands in, in about a week and moved to New Zealand and had me. I, um, I sort of began photographing, I guess, on big solo wilderness journeys throughout New Zealand and particularly the South Island where I, where I studied. And that's a very magnificent and huge and very young sort of um, impactful environment really. And, and the photography began, I guess, for me as, as a, a tool, I guess I almost felt like the, the beauty and the sacredness of the moments that I was experiencing. I just didn't want to ever leave or let go of. I was worried it almost like forget or, or not better access somehow. And, and it became this kind of almost like this greedy capture of all this incredible experiences that I was having for myself. And it was a very intimate, personal thing. It was never any formal training. Um, from there, I, I, I sort of realized it can be quite a powerful thing to share. And I started 
thinking a little bit differently in terms of my approach to image taking and 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 my relationship with landscape, which is a very personal and 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 well-being kind of orientated relationship. And then I moved into a career in wilderness adventure therapy, where I was working in the wilderness and all sorts of wild, beautiful places around Tasmania with recovering addicts and, and street kids and, and single mums and Aboriginal families. And and I started recognising the power of not only the landscape itself um, to realign people with, with really good values and, and a sense of connection with the earth that's often a bit lost in, a, in an urban sort of lifestyle and and uh, another aspect of well-being um, to become more conscious and aware of and bring into your life. And I also began recognising the power of photography to facilitate that from almost a therapeutic point of view. And, uh, and over 17 years of that career, I really started becoming a lot more conscious and aware of how photography can be used as, as a tool for well-being and, and self-reflection and, and changing identity and, and anchoring sort of powerful experiences that could otherwise sort of get washed away but can be relived and shared and honoured and and sunk sort of deeper into um, experientially um, through the memory and, and through the experience of reliving things through photography. And along that sort of parallel, I started developing sort of other parts of, of, of my photography, photography skills. And probably about 13 years ago, I joined the Australian Institute of Professional Photography and that was probably the first time I ever recognize that there's other photographers. It's a very soloist pursuit, particularly wilderness photography. And all of a sudden I was involved in a community and a wider breadth of genres of work that I was exposed to. And and I gained a lot of mentoring and camaraderie and and I created a co-created a group called the Light Collective from who I'd met there, who is a bunch of very, very skilled and contemporary modern landscape photographers to use photography as a tool for conservation in Australia. And that's been a really big part of the last six, seven years of my life. And also uh, became a judge and I've judged every state in Australia and the Australian Awards, New Zealand Awards and the WPY Awards in America. And I've been on a judging training sort of program through the organisation, which has really helped develop my visual literacy and my appreciation and understanding of the breadth of, of what's out there in the photographic world and and you know being pushed to, to look at photography just as a as one aspect of expression so so we're pushed into the art world and and we look at all sorts of different types of of i guess art and art history and and how that's sort of filtered through in photography and in modern times i guess i i do a lot of landscape work personally i do a lot of conservation work for a, a bunch of different organizations and another project that i'm particularly proud of it's about 20 years in the making is is a photo documentary project on exploring and, and having conversation about what defines healthy masculinity in australian culture today which is, is quite different from a lot of the landscape work that i'm doing and that's just come to light in the last couple of years because that's been shot in complete confidentiality for a long time so so essentially, I shoot pretty much anything and everything, and I have a bit of an ethos, I guess, that if it's not making the world a better place, then then let's change tack and try and do something that is. And that probably defines a, a lot of what motivates me to take photographs and what I try to imbue in the photographs that I do take, whether it be a, a landscape or a, or a portrait or a conservation project or, or, or just pure artistic expression. So, um, 
yeah, it's, a, it's such a broad question to ask. Tell us about yourself. So, so I'll give you a pretty broad answer, but there you go. <laughs> well, first of all, what a beautiful introduction. And second, well, wow, what a life. So many things, so many accomplishments, so many interesting projects. I'm sure that you feel very fulfilled as a photographer and as a person because you do make a difference in the photography industry and beyond. And that's not always easy to achieve. So kudos to you. And we'll dive into some of the topics that you mentioned uh, later in this interview. And I look forward to finding out about your other projects. Yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, too. What camera equipment do you use? Uh, I mean, I, I see, um, you know, a camera as a box that collects light. You know, it doesn't have any influence over your understanding of light, your understanding of composition, your, your sense of timing, your relationship to subject. So I don't get too caught up in what I use. I, I, um, I've used Nikons and Canons and Olympuses and Phase Ones and just about, not, I wouldn't say everything in the known universe. And I, I began and, and learned and developed my photography skills and film days. But I, I probably am a Canon shooter uh, through and through in terms of my daily life. Um, I borrow certain cameras or hire certain cameras for specific purpose or focus that maybe have a certain strength um, or a certain capacity, um, whether it's high resolution or faster speed. But I now use, uh, I graduated up to a Canon R5, which is their flagship, um, well, before the R3, which is about to come out, mirrorless camera. And, oh, geez, there's almost nothing it can't do well. Mm. And there's probably not too many cameras in the world you can say that. It has, you know, it's got a great amount of resolution and 45 megapixels, which I use a lot for my fine artwork and, the larger prints that I do, it's incredible in low light. It has eight stops of image stabilization by hand, which is fantastic for my documentary work and low light work. Um, it has, you know, inbuilt focus stacking and time lapse, and it's just just kind of nothing it can't do really well. There's probably certain systems in the world that do certain things better, but there's probably not many systems around that do everything really well uh, or mm. pretty everything. And that's that's been really nice for me because. You know, I've been watching the camera systems leapfrog in their capacity and, and ability in different areas. And, and to be perfectly honest, Canon's been falling behind for quite a long time. And and I, I was asked to be an ambassador for Nikon when the sort of 850 came out. And I was like, ooh, that's tempting to jump ship. But when you own 10 or 12 Canon lenses already, you, you know you're going to take a really big hit to take the jump. And thankfully, I didn't have to wait too long before for Nikon, uh, Canon to come to the party and, and come up with a you know, a flagship camera that's super capable and uh, on a contemporary level that, that matches the other the other things that are out there and, 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 um, and accessible as well. So really enjoying that. Um, I have a couple of old 5D Mark III bodies which shouldn't realistically be alive for what they've been through and another 5DSR, which was my poor man's entry into um, the larger kind of format work that I, that I love to produce if I can. Um, it's probably the one of the most accessible in its time, sort of 50 megapixel cameras that, that had come out. So I, I just, uh, yeah, I, if I can, I lean on the R5 pretty hard for most of everything I do at the moment, and I'm loving it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's good that you found equipment that really works for you. And I don't think there's a specific camera that will work perfectly for everyone. I think that's the beauty of it, that everyone has their own preferences and everyone has their own ways of approaching their work. So you just have to experiment and use all the opportunities you have. And well, I, I think it's, it's, it's quite, I mean, I, I end up, since I've been in the RPP and I met so many other photographers, I, I do a lot of collaborative work. 
And I use that opportunity to try out other systems and look at other lenses and just keep evolving and learning my camera craft, I guess, because I feel like that's something that generationally it's sort of like it's almost like the younger generation is learning to learn in post-production before they learn camera craft in the first place and I'm sort of a little bit determined to to hold on to that aspect of things as well you know that to be really conscious and aware of what you do before you press the shutter as much as possible and that's only so much to do with the camera system but the, the more you know it it's strengths and weaknesses and and uh, you know certain technical aspects of how you approach different different um genres and, and lighting situations the better the better results you're going to get that's right yeah technique is very important and yeah i mean it's great that you're experimenting with different things and collaborating with photographers i think that's one of the best ways to learn and to evolve as an artist uh, and as a, person. A, a quick funny story i was uh i was just doing an aerial flight that had, and we had to do papers as rock because there was a big storm and, and the planes didn't come and, and we ended up only had time to do one flight instead of multiple and we'd driven for eight hours to get there and my good friend scott mccook actually had hired a, a camera just to just to shoot a, a pentax medium format and i just had my 5d mark three at the time and he just said oh god why don't you take this and i was like man you hired this and you're not even coming up that's not fair and he said just go for it and so we, and i got pretty excited and i jumped into the plane and i started trying to use it and 30 seconds later the first image came out which looked like a absolute mess of I don't even know what I was even looking at and 30 seconds later the next one came out it was almost the same and I was like oh what's going on with this thing and when you're paying sort of you know thousand dollars an hour um, and you're not getting any photographs you're getting a bit worried and it turned out unbeknownst to me somehow we pushed and it took us more than half an hour when I landed to figure out what had happened it was on multiple exposure mode because oh. taking multiple exposures in camera and and in the end, I ended up just having to put it in the back of the plane and, and shoot what I could. But the strange aspect of what happened out of that, because obviously at the time I was, I, was, I was a bit devastated, and is that two of the images I got out of the ones that I created ended up winning huge awards because they were really unusual in-camera multiple exposures, which I never would have been brave enough to attempt on my own. So sometimes happy accidents can really surprise you. And it also inspired me to start experimenting with multiple exposures, which I'd never done before. It was totally by accident so so experimenting has it ups and downs but uh, it's it's generally generally a worthwhile pursuit absolutely absolutely i completely agree with you thank you for sharing that interesting story i'm really glad that it had a happy ending yeah. you mentioned yeah. aerial flights your portfolio is very diverse but i want to start with your aerial photography what initially inspires you to get into this genre well, I, I was actually, in another way, it was a bit of a happy accident. I was I was in the States. I moved there in 2007. Uh, I have American history through my mother and, and citizenship, and my sister had moved there to get married, and I went over there for the wedding, and, and I was exploring in um, Jackson Hole uh, with a good friend of mine, and I had to fly over to California, or get to California in a hurry to shoot a wedding, and I asked a friend of mine, in San Fran to help help get me over there as quick as possible and he said leave it with me leave it with me and then he and he got back to me and said all right go down to this road at this address and just be ready and and he asked me what I weighed I was like why did he ask me what I weighed and I went down there and and I looked around couldn't see anything and all of a sudden I saw this hand poke up behind a fence just waving and I was like what's going on and I went and jumped over the fence and turned out there was this tiny little private airfield and this really unusual John Lennon looking character and this really unusual looking plane 
and he uh, he was a friend of his that's uh, a private pilot, and he was he'd organised to fly me to the wedding basically. Oh, and, cool. Uh, and I was like, oh my god, this is going to be incredible. And uh, and I, I jumped in the plane, and, and it was one of the first times that you had quite a few hours and a pilot at your behest that can go and fly anything you want to, which I, I at the time I never actually experienced. You know, I'd been on tourist flights or fixed destination things where they just had to, you know, track other than all the tracking to get what you get. And we actually flew over Yellowstone National Park and in particular the Grand Prismatic Spring just screamed out at me as something that I wanted to attempt to photograph. Um, to be perfectly honest, this plane wasn't very good at it and that it was a, a very, very um, beaten up Perspex cockpit with no windows at all. But there was one tiny little slot on the side window that was big enough to maybe stick part of your hand through. So I couldn't actually put a DSLR through there at all, but I had a little point and shoot, a little G10. And it was a low-wing plane, so the only way I could get a shot straight down was actually to bank the plane over at about 45 degrees, which is not for the faint-hearted. And the only way I could get the shot was actually push my hand through that hole and shoot basically blind with this point and shoot camera. And I managed to get absolutely fluke the most beautiful shot of Grandpa's Medic Springs. And it's and it got me one of the highest awards in Australia that year. And I never told anyone that I shot it blind on a point and shoot camera, <laughs> sort of almost by accident. But it was it sort of hit this hit this note, you know, seeing the world and its intricacies from an aerial perspective is it's kind of hard to describe. Like in Australia it's the flattest continent on earth. And when you drive through a lot of the landscape, you can literally see the same view out the window for eight hours. It just looks like a brown and orange heat haze. And it's very difficult to get a sense of a relationship to the complexity and intricacy of, of the natural world or, or how all the different, how everything sort of interconnects. And as soon as you rise into the air, you know, all those intricacies just are brought to light. And in Australia, has become one of the great aerial photography destinations in the world and for very good reason. It's incredibly colourful and diverse and dynamic, especially the coastline. And we have a lot of the greatest aerial photographers in the world. And I went to an exhibition by a group called ND5. And that's Tony Hewitt, Christian Fletcher, Peter Eastway, Les Walkling, uh, are the main guys. And and it was an aerial exhibition of, of an area called Shark Bay, which is in northwest Australia, which is quite a remote, incredibly colourful, and diverse sort of landscape and I'd never seen anything like it and my jaw just hit the floor and I just got tingles up and down my spine and I just went oh my god this is just so how I want to express myself and and share with the world and 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 what how I want to create and so that was probably you know a decade ago now and so even though I've been shooting a bit before then it became a lot more focused after that and I literally, uh, I think about a year later, I went to Shark Bay myself to visit a friend who was living there and, and I managed to get up in a, in a flight. And what struck me, I guess, after 90 minutes of just trying to figure out what to do and how to do it on my own, because no one taught me anything, was I had enough material to create a book, which I did at a 90, in 90 minutes of shooting. Mm. And I was like, I do not know any other form of particularly landscape photography that, that has the potential to be that, product, that productive. It is expensive and it is quite committing and it's quite varied sort of what you're going to be facing when you, when you get up to the year. You can do all the research in the world, but there might have been a fire come through or or a flood event or, or it's the wrong season or or, um, or a fire's sort of 
smoking out the area, which is actually really prevalent in northern Australia and Western Australia in particular. Huge amounts of fires for like almost half a year, half the year of the year. But it's been by the bug. I love the dynamism, you know, sticking your head out the, the window at 200 k's an hour <laughs> with, with incredibly fast moving landscape is, is very dynamic and, and very edgy and pretty exciting. And I also think it appeals to, I guess, my approach. I'm quite a shoot off the hip intuitive photographer. I'm not a very methodical, you know, planner in terms of the way I like to create my images. And when you're flying along at 200 something Ks an hour, your compositions are changing every second. And it's so fast that you're almost forced to be just intuitive and responsive to your subject matter because you don't have time to compose at all. And, and that really suits me. It sort of bypasses the mind and, and moves into a different sort of way of relating and creating that I find very intuitive and very, very graceful and, and very beautiful and very surprising. You don't really know what you're going to come out with. And an aerial sheet, you might come back with 2,000 photographs and sometimes it might take me a year to, to go through them. And it's like opening up Christmas presents when you come back because you're, stated, you're in a flow state acting so quickly that you don't even remember half of what you photograph. So it's this real joy of almost like unwrapping these these plethora of gifts when you come back. <laughs> and and you get such large sort of bodies of work to draw upon to to create sort of really curated sort of bodies of work as well, which I really appreciate. So that that's a, uh, you you get a lot of long answers to short questions from me, but I hope that's okay. No, it's completely fine. It sounds so amazing. And that genre, aerial, aerial photography, it's incomparable based on everything you've said to me. I mean, I've never experienced it. I've never taken photos like that before, but I'm, I really hope that I will have the chance to one day because as you said, you're in a flow state, you really have to be present and that helps you connect with all of the things that you're looking at very quickly. And I mean, I can only imagine how magical it is and to have thousands of photos that you can go through throughout the year. And just unwrap like presence, as you said. Oh, I mean, yes. it's got to be cool. Like yeah. Sometimes I remember one of the first projects I did with my group, the Light Collective, was on Kaditanda Lake Air, which was a massive inland lake. And it's it's so big, in four and a half hours, we hadn't even flown around it. Or hmm. uh, plane. It's the third largest lake in the world, actually, when it's full. And I guess my point being, it's a little bit sort of unexpected and what you can sort of gain from it or, or get out of it. And, and I, I spent half a year curating for a book and an exhibition and a, and a mini film documentary. And then I went back a year later thinking I'd exhausted it. And I came out with an entire new limited edition series of work that I hadn't even noticed before. Because mm. uh, you got such a volume of work to be present with that you know, as you evolve and develop as an artist, sometimes you're, what you're drawn to and the, and the aesthetic that you're, you, you want to express is, is different. And so I've still, I've got, I don't know, maybe I've got hundreds of thousands of images from the air over the last 10 or 15 years. So sometimes I do that when I've got a bit of space. I'll, I'll go back into a shoot I might have done years and years ago uh, with fresh eyes. And it's just wonderful to have that resource at your fingertips. Absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine how inspiring it is because, I mean, from that perspective, as an aerial photographer, you have so much to work with. There's so much potential and it changes throughout the year as well, as you said. And you can always look at uh, the same landscape uh, from a different perspective, even a year later or years later. So 
yeah, there's so much to work with in this genre. It's amazing. You also yeah. mentioned that you have a project called Men with Heart, and I'd love to know more about it and what it means to you personally. Oh, geez, that's another another big question. So from a very personal perspective, I had three sisters and my mum, and my dad died when I was quite young. I was 17, and I had no grandfathers, and I had no cousins, uncles. Um, sort of at all, I had no men around me in my life um, after my dad passed away, and I was quite conscious of that and what that meant for me. How do I understand what it means to be a healthy man, a good man? You know, where do I look at my values from? Who do I, what, who and what do I look to to guide men in terms of, you know, a healthy, well, well-rounded path to tread? And I guess when I arrived in Tasmania, I'd spent a few years searching in that regard and, and sort of trying to reflect and, and find, you know, the kind of, I don't know if resources are quite the right word, but I guess the life experience and, people in particular that I could bounce off um, to get some more guidance, I guess, in that regard, or, or at least, you know, some, somebody to bounce off. And I, I came across an organization called Tasman, and they run retreats sort of once a year uh, for the well-being of men. And they're done in remote areas. And the idea and the ethos, I guess, is to create a very, very safe, welcoming space for men to let the guard down and be really authentic and to share and be present with whatever is going on for them in a very, very genuine way. That could be sadness, could be grief, could be anger, could be joy. And, you know, it's not often in our lives that we find a very, very safe space to, to really let our guard down, even in our everyday life. You know, There's, we wear a lot of masks and and we need to in a way. You, you do need to be discerning with your vulnerability. You can't just put it anywhere and everywhere. But to have a very concerted space where that, that is held so beautifully um, and so honorably and so respectfully is very unusual and very amazing and very transformative space to hold. And straight away I realized I was, I'd found something really special to me and that really filled, I guess not the whole, but it, it gave me what I needed. And I came across the kind of men that, that have since become like uncles and grandpas and, and brothers in a way and and I found the community that I could really lean into in terms of exploring and becoming more clear about the kind of man that I wanted to be and it was supported in being so um, and also you know the capacity to to heal and, and deal with parts of yourself you're not you're not necessarily as proud of or find as easy to deal with and and some very skilled and empowered men um, there facilitator wise that are quite capable of you know, both challenging and inspiring you to, to be a better man, whatever whatever form that is, particularly in, in terms of well-being in general. And and I began photographing it um, 2001. And it was a very challenging and beautiful thing to photograph. There was a lot of sensitivity. The environment was completely confidential. So I had to be almost sacrosanct with how contained I was with the imagery that I created. And it was created for the community to relive those connections with other men and, and the experience that they had and to share with their partners and close close family. And it was never, ever meant to be seen. And I, as I developed as a photographer with my wilderness therapy career in parallel and other photography work, I, I gained more skill and understanding and sense of purpose, I guess, in the work that I was doing. And again, I was the only person allowed to photograph for 20 years at all in that environment. And about 15 years in, I realized, wow, this is a really unique body of work. There's probably not a lot like it in the world. 
certainly not Australia anyway. And imagine how touched the wider community could be and, and potentially transform to, to share this. And I started approaching the board about that and, and, I, and as much as they really respected where I was coming from, then the answer was no, quite a few years in a row because the sanctity and the, and the emotional safety of the experience for the men was paramount. And I actually really respected that um, because you imagine if, if you're going somewhere and you're going into a deep emotional space you've never been to and it takes a lot of courage and all of a sudden someone's just throwing a camera in your face and you have no idea where the photographs are going to go, you'd just shut up like a clamshell and you wouldn't go there. And that's mm-hmm. taking incredible opportunity away from another man. So that's also something that I, I understood from experience. But eventually the, the leadership changed with the organisation and, and my voice was kind of heard and to a point where actually a group of other men had been listening to my sort of, not arguments, but requests, I guess, over the years. And they ended up approaching me and saying, we have an idea to do this and we're going to organise um, some funding. And we ended up getting a grant and and slowly getting permission from the wider community to bring it out into the world. And, and we created the Men With Heart Project, which took half a year to curate 25,000 images and quite unusually I'm I'm the sole photographer for all the work but the way it's been handled both from me and the community is it's the community's work and the curation done by the community I was only one aspect of it and even to this day whatever happens with this body of work it's all done through the community and and not by me as an artist so so I just a cog in the wheel and it's sort of become a lot bigger than me. It's been it's had over 10,000 people through it and four different exhibitions around Tasmania, five exhibitions now. And it's just started a journey around Australia. Uh, it's won a number of um, community health and wellbeing awards for its impact on, on men and boys in particular. It's incredibly impactful work. Like I've never seen as many people in tears, particularly women, who see, I guess, the qualities they're looking for in their sons and their, and their partners and and a sense of hope that there's men that are actually listening and doing good work to better themselves. You know, there's the Me Too movement and other movements that are really showing up. The darker things are what men's capable of, and that's important to be called into light and held accountable. But if we're left kind of with a mistrust of men, we kind of all lose. So what I love about this body of work sort of represents a very, very positive, hopeful kind of energy about it and representation of men that are listening and developing and growing and supporting each other to become better men. And, you know, there's nine men a day taking their lives in Australia and that's three or four times more than women. And to me, that's testament that there's really some, some things going on that need addressed in terms of what we see as healthy masculinity and Australian culture is very, um, I wouldn't say it's closed, but it's a bit rough around the edges with the way men interact. Yeah, should be right, mate. Oh, you know, it's, there's not a lot of ease around emotional expression, particularly more challenging emotional expression, and that's not something we're taught how to do or modelled how to do well. And I feel like that's one of the impacts on that horrible statistic, you know, is that men, a lot of men haven't learnt how to reach out and be vulnerable and to be okay to not be okay and to ask for help and to be ready to receive it. And to understand how to navigate their, their emotional their emotions in particular. And so what we've done with this exhibition is rather than just presenting photographs, we've, we've made it a, I guess, to spark a fire. The idea is that to go around everywhere in Australia, if not the world, and connect with communities of men that are doing good men's work in that area, engage them with the exhibition, get them to actually facilitate the exhibition, bring community in, have conversations, have artist talks, 
actually run what we call heart circles where they have an experiential um experiential experience they, they get to experience what it's like to be in a safe confidential space to let the guard down and and just be how they need to be and express what they need to express in a, in a very safe confidential way and and we've introduced not only the photographs but also the words of the men in the photographs that are talking about what's how this photograph has impacted them or what it represents for them we also got a filmmaker in to do really beautiful in-depth interviews with men in the photographs that, that travels with the exhibition and then we also created another interactive aspect where we have it travels with these beautiful cards that anybody feels moved by an image they are encouraged to share what it's meant to them or how it's impacted them and then that is actually placed with the image itself for and it travels with, with the expedition the um, exhibition wherever it goes and and it just keeps growing and my next aspect is to turn it into a book form to make it even more accessible because obviously not everyone's going to be able to see it in its physical form. So COVID slowed things down, um, but it is on the mainland sort of sprung and ready to go to head around the country. So as it opens up next year, it'll be um, getting its legs to, to travel around and support goods, men's work and, and sort of mental health and well-being around Australia. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code podcast to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Our 365 Days of Photography course is an amazing opportunity for you to grow as a photographer. My teammate, Kevin LJ, has produced this course in a step-by-step -step format, which is very easy to follow. The course is presented in bite-sized lessons, each with a practical challenge. You'll learn and practice a new aspect of photography every single day. Each lesson is around five minutes long, and you can spend as much time on the challenges as you like. There's also a friendly forum where you can share the photos you take and get constructive feedback from others in the course. Kevin's professional photography experience is extensive. He covers not only photography essentials, but also many genres of photography throughout the course. You will learn far more about photography than simply how to use your camera. For our listeners, we're offering a very special discounted price of $199. The final price will soon be $365, so make sure to take advantage of this great deal today. Thank you so much for your contribution to the community, especially when it comes to mental health. I think regardless of gender, regardless of what beliefs anyone has, it's very important for everyone to take good care of their mental health. And as you said, unfortunately, a lot of men in Australia and in many other countries do not have access to resources that can help them better themselves in terms of mental health and connect with people in a very vulnerable way. So you bringing awareness to this is very important. And it's beautiful that you've been able to do this in multiple ways and that you have been able to share your photographs with the world. I'm sure that it will continue impacting many people and 
Thank you very much for sharing the story as well. It was very eye-opening and very unique for sure. As you said, not many people are able to do something like this for a long period of time. So it must have been a very eye-opening experience for you personally as well. Very deeply personal experience. And what's what's, what's interesting for me when I, when I see the exhibition, it's sort of like each photograph has so many stories behind it that I'm probably the only person privy to, you know, because I... I know those men or I knew, knew what lead up to that moment and and I've even known what's happened as a result. And it's sort of what's interesting about, I guess, any sort of art form is you, you have limited access to how it impacts people generally because that's often very internal or it's retrospective down the track. And there's a few sort of wonderful stories. I'll just share two quick ones of, of how, I guess, you know, and it's not necessarily reflective of me, but just the power of, of, of photography in general, if it's handled very, um, if it's very deeply considered, is, uh, you know, I don't even meet this young fellow, but apparently there was a young, young 12, 13 year old boy that came in to one of the exhibitions and he came by himself and he spent three and a half hours in there and he didn't say a word. And one of the people knew who he was and she followed up with him about a week later and said, Oh, how was that for you? What happened? And he said, I just, I'd been estranged, he'd been estranged from his father for a long period of time and he saw that body of work and something just clicked inside him and said, no longer, no longer. I need to find a way to reach out to my dad and get this relationship, you know, back into my life. And he, and he literally was so inspired by what he saw from the work and it opened him so, so much that, that he found the courage to, to go and knock on his door and approach him and say, dad, I miss you. I really want to spend time with you. Can we go away and do something together? And he just took that risk and, and they did. And they sort of reignited their their relationship. And I don't know how many zillion or other stories are like that that have come out of it, but it's even if it's just one, it's worth it, you know. And what we did also, which is quite different, is, is as I said, we it surprised us how incredibly impacted women in particular were. And we had organised to run these men's circles within the confines of the exhibition where we invited men to come in and do what I said before, that experiential kind of circle of, um, in a safe sort of contained facilitated space and the women were like well, what about us what about us and we were like oh okay we've been doing men's work for 20 years where we don't we've never really crossed it over before but but we listened and we actually reached out and and got one of the top female facilitators in tasmania to come together with us and we started gendered gender mixed circles which we'd never done before and we didn't know how it was going to go uh, where men and women had a, a safe and contained and, and, and confidential space to, to really express, you know, the bigger picture issues that are going on uh, and whatever they needed to. And, and it was like, whoa, it was so powerful. I went to all of them. And I obviously can't repeat anything that happened, but I will share one experience where one of the circles that we organised was, was only meant to be at an hour and a half and four hours later it was still going. And nobody wanted to finish. And we actually only had to finish because we had to get out of the building. Mm. And one of the women hadn't spoken. She was the only one. And just very gently, because uh, it's, no, it's just invitation only. There's no expectation. We said, you know, we're about to close circle and we're aware that you're probably the only person that hasn't spoken. Would you like to take this last opportunity? And by this time, she, she was shaking. She was absolutely shaking. She stood up and said, I have not been able to be in a room with men with a closed door for 20 years mm. just broke down in tears. And these three men, never met her before, just walked up quietly and wrapped her up and held her and she just cried and cried. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And it was just 
you know, the context of, of that body of work and the way it just opens people's hearts, I guess, and, and their emotional selves to be more um, available, um, you know, and feel safe to, to, to be vulnerable is like, whoa, you know, like it, it's like if you're being around an incredibly vulnerable body of work, it, it, it sort of gives permission for that vulnerability. It makes you feel a bit safer to go there yourself. And I think that's maybe the beauty or the power in, in that work is here at men offering this courage and intimacy and openness all around you and, and you just innately you know, feel, I guess, more capable or, or have more permission or feel more ease around that happening yourself. So we've tried to be very conscious about the impact of the exhibition and actually have skilled people present at the exhibition all the time to actually help support people on the kind of maybe, uh, you know, when they don't know what to do with how they're impacted by it. And also to have been with the knowledge of, well, if they suddenly say, hey, look, I, I need something in my life. Where do I go? What do I do? Or I'm struggling with this. You know, they, we actually have people that, that know the kind of avenues and, and resources that are out there to help support them further. Um, yeah, very, very deeply personal and beautiful body of work. And it's, I guess it's rare in a career as a photographer to, to create something that's bigger than you and, and is going to have a lot bigger legs than you ever thought would. And um, quite amazingly, this this has, has sort of fallen into that space. Yeah, and it's incredible that you're a part of something like this and a big part of this. And as you said, it, this requires a lot of sensitivity. So you do need to be mindful right. of people's emotions. You need to be respectful. And I've seen this in your aerial photos as well. Like you're respectful of the landscapes. You're respectful of everything that is around you that you photograph. And I know that's quite difficult to achieve. So. Do you have any advice for photographers who want to get better at taking photos that tell a meaningful story respectfully? Well, I'll just sit with that word respect for a while. Like, like respect has lots of influences in photography. So I don't reveal locations generally, um, and particularly areas that are sensitive or that I know that people will visit um, if they knew how to get there or, or what it was. Or, or And that's sort of, you know, an issue with social media and and conservation of landscape that, that comes up quite a lot. Another aspect of respect is is understanding and actually researching and finding out and getting permission to photograph certain areas because culturally, a lot of areas in Australia are very sensitive and they're very sacred, and it's actually not okay to go there or to photograph them even from the air. And a lot of photographers would not make the effort or even have the understanding to or, or respect to even research that and you know like a good friend of mine tanya Niwa, uh, tanya uh, malkin and um uh, the west kimberley which is quite a, a very very sacred area to the aboriginal people you know she she reminds me each time you know and we we do a lot of area work around australia of, of what areas are okay and not okay and and who to reach out to and the different land, land councils you can actually find out these things from you know a lot of people just go out there and say oh, i'm just going to shoot whatever i want to shoot but you know it's sort of um it's quite disrespectful and, and, and can be a bit, not very dangerous, but um, very damaging to, to some cultural aspects of things if, if you're not showing that, that sort of respect. In terms of meaningfulness, well, I think that's a little bit personal. You know, I think you're going to be able to capture the greatest meaning with things that are meaningful to you personally. Um, I think taking the time to build relationships and to develop rapport and, and trust with your subject matter be it a landscape or a person or, or a culture is really important and I don't think there's anything that can replace that. 
uh, it's it's a fine line between you know getting the shot in a moment, um, which mean you actually cross that line to get the shot uh, because it's there in the moment and you know it's going to go, and maybe actually choose not to at times. And sometimes it's those moments that I have not taken a photograph that have ended up giving me permission to go places and do things that I wouldn't have if I hadn't shown that respect and that sensitivity. And they've become more meaningful as a result. I think immersion is a big part of it, like immersing yourself in a, in, a, in a landscape for a long period of time and learning its nuances and its rhythms and its moods sort of gives you, you know, and you're open to, to its, its voice, you know, rather than trying to put your own over the top of it so to speak. You know, I don't go out with pre-conceptualized images in my mind. Uh, I go to a landscape and say, here I am. I'm really grateful and happy to be here. What would you like to say to me? Or how can I be your voice even? You know, there's a, there's a quote that I found years ago, and it's, I'm still trying to understand what it means even to me, but it's, it's very simple. It just says, spirit, stand still for the photographer it, it has chosen. And I feel like um, that's a little bit of the reverence that I that I hold when I go out there, at least in the back of my mind, and sometimes a little bit more deliberately. So, yeah, having your heart involved and, and rather than just your mind is, is another aspect. You know, people can feel when you're, you know, part of your being is really wrapped up in the, in the process of creation and, and, and what comes through in the images. And being able to listen, such a simple word, such a hard thing to do well, either again to a landscape, a, a place, a moment, a culture, a person, and that's a great skill. And that's actually one of the great skills we we really really work hard at um, at the men's gathering is um, practicing deep, real, empathic listening, you know, free of judgment and and being really open, um, and trying not to get tripped up on your own sort of story or your own response to something emotionally, but actually just allowing the purity of what's, what's being present in front of you to, to come through. That's right. Yeah. I mean, photography is so visual, but it's listening is a big part of it as well. It has to be a big part of it. And in order to understand your subject, as you said, you have to be able to listen to it, to give it a voice, to, to give it its own voice and to not stain it with your own ideas or your own stories or whatever, as you mentioned earlier. And I think that's such an important yet difficult thing to achieve but it's very important well, it's, it's it's unrealistic in one capacity and that you're always going to have who you are imbued in your images and your own beliefs and and the reasons why you're even there in the first place so you, you can't separate that completely but it's worth making the effort to understand when that's actually helping and when it's maybe limiting what you're creating or or um taking it or yeah i guess that's a simple way to put it yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as you're open to learning from others and being respectful, then that's that's okay. And you've said that you, you've judged a number of photography competitions, and I know so many of the listeners are interested in photography competitions, and I'm curious to know how judging other people's work has affected your own photography. Yeah, quite immensely, to be honest. Like, like, a, like I said, I grew up very independent of any influences really um apart from just my life experience in general i I didn't i wasn't really aware of much work out there i never studied anywhere i I never even looked at other people's work for a long period of time and and so the the initial kind of relationship with photography was very 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 deeply personal and by you know joining an organization like the app which is very centered around 
um, photographic competitions, in particular print-based competitions, which are becoming very, very rare in the world, where the art and the craft of, of, of beautiful print is, is just as relevant as the image itself. Um, and that's, um, that's been a really big part of my life for the last 12 years. And, and I have done a lot of judging and I've done a lot of judge training. And I think, you know, I remember sometimes, I remember getting asked to judge the New Zealand Awards for the first time. And I went over there and I sat down on a panel and I was on a panel with four grandmasters, which is basically there was about oh, 12 of them in the world or something, and, or at least in New Zealand in 50 years. So basically they're the top of the pops and, and the granddaddies. And, and, and I had to um, – you weren't allowed to repeat anything that had been said by another judge on the panel. And I repeatedly kept getting put in a position where I was the fifth person to speak. <laughs> and these people – they collectively had about 150 years of photographic experience and had already spoken to all the image. Here I was trying to come up with something new or innovative or insightful that hadn't been spoken yet. And it was like, oh, my God, it was one of the hardest situations I've ever been in and ultimately one of the most amazing because I, I found that being put in a position, and it's live, you know, with people around you being recorded around the world and that kind of thing, it's, it's quite an intense environment it, that I surprised myself hugely with what resource I found within myself and the visual literacy and the conceptual understanding and, and the narrative understanding it really really pushed me to look deeper and look under the surface and beyond and think about art references and and connect the dots of other aspects of, of the image and not get caught up in just the technical um stuff sort of playing along the surface of an image and and i and i've really found that i personally just thrive in that environment you know having live arguments with some of the great photographers of all the genres um, in the country, you know, is, is an incredible resource for me to learn and grow from. And in some ways I've probably learnt and grown more from that process than just taking photographs. And that's really surprised me. And outside of that, it's, it's enabled me to travel all around Australia. And I now have people and places I can stay around the whole country um, at any time, um, which I literally just did a month or two ago. Went around just every state in Australia, staying with photographers and shooting with other photographers, and and I guess it's become a lodestone every year. Say, say one competition in particular, like say the Appers, which which was actually sadly meant to happen um, as of yesterday, but it just got cancelled. But every year, if you if you say repeatedly push yourself to go into competition, you you have a lodestone to reflect on how you've evolved in that year. How have I grown? What have I learned? How do I want to push myself? What can I do differently? Um, What's a more innovative or original way to express this or, or to present this in print form, you know, um, whether it's from a real technical level to, you know, localised sharpening techniques and understanding of paper and translation of ink and colour management, you know, right all the way back to really deeper conceptual and, and narrative kind of aspects, which which is where you need to go to if you want to have a real shot at doing well at competitions because most of these judges have they've seen it all before. And what they're thirsty for and what they want to see is very innovative, progressive, you know, original work uh, as much as possible. And so it challenges you to grow and evolve as an image maker, to critique your work, to reach out to other people and reflect, to, you know, develop your skills in different ways, either in post-production or in the way you see things. And it's just a, it, just, it just keeps pushing you to grow. And a lot of the competitions have rules where, something has to be shot within the last year or two. So it can't, you can't be resting on a body of work you shot ages ago where you really hit the mark. You know, you constantly have to keep presenting new and more innovative work in, in order to um, keep moving forward. And it has to be fresh work. 
So there's a couple of rule changes just of late during COVID where people have given things a little bit more room because a lot of people haven't been able to shoot. But I think the most powerful and valuable aspect is what happens before you send a print away or you put push the send button to a competition. And that's if you're really honest about it because you can get caught up in the need for external validity and that can be quite disempowering sometimes if you're kind of giving your power away to, to the outside sort of semi-subjective influence of competitions um, and you've got to have a, a strong stomach or um, or a lot of self-confidence to not be influenced by that and me, I personally get influenced by that as well. But if you if you take a step back and realise that, you know, everything I've done up to that point has meant I, I now have curated all this work, I've, I've tried out some new things, I've, I've critiqued certain things, I'm a lot more aware of how I've evolved in this last year and I'm going to let go of the result and just send it out and see what happens. And anything from there is a bonus. So I think that's a much more healthy way to look at approaching contests. It gives you a little bit of a sense of maybe where your work's at in terms of what's out there at the time. I think as a judge, I've learned to respect and admire genres of work that I haven't been involved with myself. I've challenged myself to grow and learn in terms of art history and other forms of, of, of um of artistic expression as well that can translate through. And so I probably wouldn't have pushed myself to engage in that way. Um, and I've been exposed to a huge amount of really innovative work that I never would have been exposed to and up close and personal. And not only been exposed to it, been asked to, to look underneath it and analyze it and, and go really deep into it. And my visual literacy has evolved hugely as a result as well, being put on the spot live to have to come up with arguments to, to support, you know, my scores and, and to try and influence other judges to see things they might not have seen. You know, that, that's really helped me grow as a writer in terms of the photographic world as well. And the community around it is incredible. Um, I, I couldn't even put even start to put a value on what that's meant for me, the, the mentoring, the friendships, the camaraderie, and what is, you know, it generally is quite a solace pursuit photography. So many, many things. And continually evolving in that regard i'll do it i'll do it for as long as they'll let me (laughs) (laughs) well i hope that'll be a long time and this really shows the power of collaboration in photography as you said it can be quite an isolated thing because Mm -hmm. we're often in our own heads and we're photographing something ourselves we don't really need someone's help but it does help so much to collaborate with people to put yourself out there as scary as it might be sometimes because you will get so much return for that and I hope that the listeners yeah. uh, use this as inspiration to join some more competitions in the future and to reach out to people and collaborate and not be alone. Well, I think if you if you just, I mean, look at the culture of the co- different competitions have a different, they do have a different style and expectation around the kind of work. And you, you want to be a little bit conscious of that because you might be a little bit of a square peg in a round hole depending on the, the culture and expectations of a competition. So, so say the, um, the international landscape talk of the year is a very is often very very highly processed, refined work, you know, with focal blending and all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on that tends to rise to the top. And there's a very refined and very elegant and almost fantastical finish to a lot of the work that tends to appeal to the judges they use and and the culture of that particular contest. And then you enter something like Head On, which is an Australian based competition, and you have no idea what's going to win. In fact. I got second one year and the image that won landscape was a giraffe lying down on a blue tarp on the grass. Mm. <laughs> like like it's, you have no idea where it's going to go. And it's very much about raw, authentic humanitarian social commentary. 
which is really quite different. And then there's one that just came out um, literally a month ago, the Natural Landscape Awards, which is from a – I'm speaking more from a landscape point of view uh, in terms of what's out there. That's Again, that's all about what happens before the shutter's pressed, and there's very strict rules about limiting post-production work at all and encouraging people to be as close to you know raw files as possible. So so look at, look at what's out there and, and maybe pick your chances, but um, in terms of if you're actually worried about an outcome or – you know, putting apples with oranges is, is going to have a sort of a bit of a curious effect. So do a bit of homework and take a bit of a stab and try and be a little bit lighthearted about it because it's not the end of the world either way. But again, and be very present to the value and, and you making the effort in the first place and honour your courage and vulnerability for doing so because that is significant. That's right. Very, very good advice. Okay, Paul, I have one more question for you and that is what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Oh, is that all? <laughs> well, I mean, I can think of a million things that, that on a smaller scale or a larger scale I like to accomplish in terms of um, you know, conservation and, and social commentary and, and you know, and expression, self-expression as well from a personal level. But I guess I'll go back to something, and I think I alluded to it earlier in the show, that my father left me with is, you know, and one of the guiding principles of the decisions that you make in life in general is, is this making the world a better place? And I guess that's something that pervades my life and a lot of my decisions on a daily basis and certainly through my work. And that might come right down to, you know, just putting a smile on, on grandma's face on a shoot or um, noticing out of the corner of my eye the, the shy person that otherwise wouldn't have the courage to, to be part of the, the conversation or, or, or the visual memory of what you're recording or... Um, all the way through to, you know, the, the work that I've been doing for, for decades on trying to, you know, help conserve incredible vast areas of wilderness and on the planet and um, and challenging conversations about global warming and and obviously the Mammoth Heart Project in terms of, you know, creating really well-needed conversation about mental health and well-being and the values that and, and capacity for, for men in terms of well-being. And so... You know, I guess it, you, your ideas of what's possible evolve as, as your skills and your confidence and your capacity and your resources because um, I feel like, you know, resources from a community point of view and, and an industry point of view get wider as, as you get more engaged as well. But, yeah, if I pull it back to something really, really simple, is, is, is this bringing meaning? Does it have a positive purpose? And I'm a little bit stubborn in that regard in that, you know, I, I – usually pretty much won't engage in an activity or with a company or with a with a shoot that doesn't have a positive purpose you know and you, you can be very broad about what that is but you kind of know it you can feel it and, and get a sense of it and you know if i get to buy a bag of rice because because you know the one opportunity i've got is is you know doing something that isn't really doing anything other than making lighting somebody's pocket or being really self-purposed then i'll buy a bag of rice and and eat simply for a while it's just how i am and and so I have that sort of principle guiding me, but um, at the same time, try and be open a little bit and maybe, I guess, open-minded because you, you can you can make your own assumptions about what brings meaning and purpose to to something that may not be somebody else's. And it might be much more subtle and gentler and softer and just the way you speak to people and engage with them as a photographer can be really impactful in terms of um, giving them the courage and, and opportunity to be really present and authentic. And yeah, so big and small scale, I guess, but I'm, I'm quite happy to maybe finish with that 
that simple analogy is this is this is is this, the, is this making the world a better place, you know, or how can I use what I'm doing to make the world a better place? Probably a more proactive way to look at it and very simplistic and also very deep at the same time. But it, but it leaves me with a great sense of purpose and satisfaction and joy in terms of bounding out of bed every day and thinking, rubbing my hands together saying, what's next? Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's a great value to have. It's such a nice approach to life in general and people, yeah, I mean, when we think of changing the world or making an impact, we think of these huge things and you are doing those things. But as you said, it's something that can be achieved on a smaller scale as well, where you speak to people with kindness or you treat everybody the way you'd want to treat yourself. And those are all very simple things, of course. Uh, uh, oh, that's good. another big one my dad gave me. Always treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. That's that's, right. um, that's a huge guiding principle in terms of my daily life as well. Yeah, thanks, Dad, <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> yes, thank you, Paul's dad. Um, but yeah, I mean, these seemingly small things that are repeated all the time, they can make a huge impact in someone's life. And people remember the way that you make them feel, right? And so if you yeah. do that as a photographer, as a person, then it can really make an impact in the world. So, well, I want to thank you for sharing your story, first of all. It was really vulnerable and beautiful, very helpful on a technical and personal level. And I am, I have no doubt that you will continue making an impact in the photography industry and beyond with your amazing work and your amazing principles. So thank you for sharing your story with the listeners and me. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you to my lovely friend Serena in Iceland for uh, connecting the two of us and making it possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you to Serena. Such an amazing interview uh, that led to another amazing interview. I'm very grateful. Um, absolutely my pleasure. Thank and, you. Yeah, I, I'm, it's, it's so wonderful to have such a, an authentic platform to be really present and open and vulnerable and personal and, and feel safe to do so. So thank you for providing that too. Oh, thank you so much. I had such a nice conversation with you and uh, I cannot wait to share this conversation with the listeners. Yeah, great. Well, enjoy everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking to Paul about his amazing projects and everything that he's passionate about. I'm really happy to connect with somebody who really cares about different kinds of projects and helping people. And I really hope that his story inspires you to put yourself out there and contribute in your own way to the world. See you next week. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.